0: I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is special guest, Dr. Peter Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson is a professor at Ottawa University in Kansas. He is also one of the co-hosts of the Faith and Economics podcast. I think you'll find my conversation with Dr. Jacobson to be quite interesting Uh, I invited Dr. Jacobson on the program after I read an article that he had authored uh, on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, and he wrote about an economist that way back in the 1970s predicted that we would see censorship, and I think you'll find my conversation with Dr. Jacobson to be quite interesting. That will be in segments two and three of today's program. I'd like to remind you that during the month of July as well, my July special report is now available. It is titled Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. There are five mistakes outlined in the report as well as a path forward for you to consider. I'd be very glad to send you a copy of the report as well as some bonus information. All you need to do to request your report and the information that accompanies it is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. So the big question, economically speaking, is recession or no recession? Well, last week on a CNBC interview, New York Federal Reserve Bank President John Williams suggested that there will not be a recession he was being interviewed by Steve Leesman uh, on the program Squawk Box. And here is what President Williams had to say. Quote, a recession is not my base case right now. I think the economy is strong. Clearly, financial conditions have tightened, and I'm expecting growth to slow this year quite a bit relative to what we had last year. But that's not a recession. It's a slowdown that we need to see in the economy to really reduce the inflationary pressures that we have and bring inflation down. Mr. Williams went on to say that we're far from where we need to be on rates. He said, quote, My own baseline projection is we do need to get into somewhat restrictive territory next year given the high inflation the need to bring inflation down and really achieve our goals. But that projection is about a year from now. Of course, we need to be data dependent. Now, there are perhaps some listening to today's broadcast that think Mr. Williams' forecast of a soft economic landing, which I would define as getting inflation under control while avoiding recession, some may think that that soft economic landing is possible, but don't count me among them. Particularly when Mr. Williams said we need to be data dependent, perhaps he didn't read the data being published by the Atlanta Fed, which squarely contradicts Mr. Williams' position. The Atlanta Fed uh, reported this, and uh, this article uh, actually was uh, taken from menafin.com. And I'm going to read you just a bit from the article. The United States economy is already in a recession, according to data from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's gross domestic product model released on Friday. In a declaration, the Atlanta Fed stated the GDP Now model estimate for real GDP growth, seasonally adjusted annual rate in the second quarter of 2022 is a negative 2.1% on July 1, down from a negative 1% on June 30. So in one day, economic contraction projections doubled. Now, CNN published an article on June 29 that said the U.S. economy shrank at a slightly faster rate than previously estimated during the first quarter. That's according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, or the BEA. Real GDP declined at an annualized rate of 1.6% from January to March, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis' third and final revisions for the quarter. Now, if you're not familiar with how economic data is reported, particularly GDP data, there is always the initial projection, the initial estimate, if you will. And then typically that estimate is revised as more data comes in. Previously the contraction estimate was 1.4%. Last month, that was revised to a decline of 1.5%, and now more recently, 1.6%. So in the first quarter of this year, we had negative economic growth. We had an economic contraction. According to the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, we are on track for a larger contraction in the second quarter of this year. Now, I don't know if Mr. Williams, who, again, is the New York Federal Reserve Bank president, reads the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank data. But if he did, he might come to a different conclusion. Now, there is another sign the economy is slowing. Amazon announced the company is canceling or delaying plans to build 16 more warehouses this year. Zero Hedge reported it this way. After spending billions, doubling the size of its fulfillment network during the pandemic, Amazon finds itself in a perilous position. In the first quarter of 2022, the e-commerce giant reported a $3.8 billion net loss after raking in an $8.1 billion profit in the first quarter of 2021. Amazon CFO Brian Oslovsky said the company chose to expand its warehouse network based on the high end of a very volatile demand outlook. But, as I suggested earlier, Amazon has shut down or delayed plans for at least 16 scheduled facilities. Oslovsky told investors recently... So we brought down our build expectations. Note again that many build decisions were made 18 to 24 months ago, so there are limitations on what we can adjust mid-year. So it seems that we are in a recession, which I have been talking about here on the program uh, really since January of this year. Now, if you're just joining me, it is a perfect time to order our July 2022 special report Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. That report, as well as some bonus information, is available absolutely free. All you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. Just let me know where to mail the report and the bonus information, and I'll be very glad to do that at no cost to you and with no further obligation to you. Now, I'm going to talk more about what's in this report in the fourth segment of today's program, but the first mistake really relates to what I just talked to. The first mistake is ignoring the realities of today's economy. We have experienced massive levels of currency creation since early 2020. In fact, if you go take a look at the Fed's balance sheet, at the time of the financial crisis, the balance sheet was about a trillion dollars. That increased to just under four trillion in early 2020. It now stands at nine trillion. So, in the last two years, five trillion dollars in currency creation has taken place. That has, in my view, created something called an everything bubble, or that I would call an everything bubble. Now, if you take a look at that $5 trillion in new currency creation, and you can go to the St. Louis Federal Reserve website and find a chart, and if you compare that chart to a chart of stocks, in particular the S&P 500, those two charts are nearly mirror images of each other. These two charts have nearly identical trajectories. Stocks, as measured by the S&P 500, have increased about 120% from the market bottom in calendar year 2020 when the currency creation began in earnest. Currency creation over that same time frame has increased by about 125%. Stocks, as measured by the S&P 500, up about 120%. Currency creation increased by 125%. Coincidence? I don't think so. So if you're wondering why stocks did so well, I believe you've just discovered most of the answer. Currency creation at these levels has led to the inflation that we are all all not only seeing, but we're also suffering through. Now, as I talked about earlier in this segment, the Federal Reserve, in response to this inflation, has stated that monetary policy will tighten. Now, the Fed, to this point, has increased rates very, very modestly. Too modestly, in my view, to make any meaningful difference in addressing the inflation problem. So I expect that inflation will continue. And I talk about this in the July special report. Again, if you're just joining me, the July special report is titled Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. I'd be glad to send you a copy of the report. All you have to do to request your free copy is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. And when you visit the site, all you'll need to do is give me your name, let me know where you'd like that report to be mailed, and we'll mail the report, as well as some bonus information. You'll get a big box of stuff in the mail, and we'd be very glad to send it to you at no cost or obligation. Again, the site is requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Dr. Peter Jacobson. Back to RLA Radio. I'm your host Dennis Stubergen. Joining me on today's program is first-time guest uh, Peter Jacobson. Uh, Peter, uh, welcome to the program. It's certainly a, a pleasure to have you on.
1: Dennis, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: So, Peter, just for our listeners' benefit, talk a little bit about uh, your background and your work, and uh, kind of the path that, that that took you to where you are now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well. Uh, I will start by saying that I'm currently a professor at Ottawa University uh, in the greatest Ottawa, which is in Kansas, of course. Uh, (laughs) I I, I am an economics professor, and I got my PhD from George Mason University uh, up in Fairfax, Virginia, uh, studying, uh, you know, institutions and development. And, you know, one of my big areas of interest is uh, population growth. And so I, I studied a bit of that. Uh, did my undergraduate at Southeast Missouri State, but I, I've just always had an interest ever since my first economics class in high school. I've always had a, a real interest in economics and how it impacts people's actions. Uh, understanding people and what they do is is very interesting to me, and I think economics is a, a great way of doing that. And so that's kind of my background. Now I'm at, like I mentioned, at Ottawa we have the Gortney Institute, uh, which is an institute that looks at uh, you know human freedom and flourishing. Uh, and we kind of have a, an angle of uh, faith and economics as well, and so we're a, a Christian university here at Baptist University in Ottawa, uh, Kansas, and so uh, we kind of at, are at the intersection of those things, and so that's, that's what I work on uh, in the present day.
0: And Peter, you had mentioned before we started uh, recording today's conversation that uh, you do, uh, or your uh, organization, uh, your university does a faith and uh, economics podcast. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Sure, yeah. That's uh, So myself, the founder of the Gorton Institute, uh, Dr. Russ McCullough, and we have a philosopher, uh professor of philosophy here at Ottawa University who also does it with us, Dr. Justin Clark. And uh, basically what we do is we try to approach different uh, topics generally having to do uh, with economics, and we try to tie in uh, faith. You know, we're we're all Christians, and we're interested on the the Christian perspective on different things. Dennis, that's really important to me that that in my work, I, I try to tie it together with the, the things that I believe. And so we'll talk about everything for you know, policies and what economic implications they have uh, and what that has to do with, you know, our, our Christian worldview. Uh, but we also do things like talk about uh, different, you know, intellectual discoveries over time. So we talked about, for example, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Uh, so we've talked about kind of all sorts of things, uh, you know, free will versus determinism. Uh, and we try to tie in faith and economics at all aspects.
0: So, Peter, just for the listeners' uh, benefit, uh, one of the reasons I reached out to you and wanted to get you on the program is that, uh, uh, as all the longtime listeners know, I'm a big fan of the Foundation for Economic Education Uh, Larry Reed has been on the program numerous times. And uh, you wrote an article for fee Uh, that the the listeners can find on FEE.org, I should say, uh, that really got my attention. Um, Can can you just maybe start by giving a broad overview of the article and then we'll we'll drill down?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the article came about because a few years ago I had read an article by an economist named Ronald Coase. Uh, and Coase is famous for a a lot of uh, discoveries in economics and and a lot of uh, good sort of innovations to the field. Uh, But this article is not one of his more well-known ones, uh, where he talks about the market for goods and services and the market for ideas. And Coase's puzzle that he puts forward, uh, and listeners uh, will benefit to realize that he was writing this in the 70s, and so uh, this will maybe become important in a a little bit here. But Coase's question was, why is it that, you know, the professional intelligentsia, academics and journalists, uh, why is it that they defend so uh, vigorously uh, the the market for ideas, free speech, in other words, we could say, uh, but they don't defend the market for goods and services? And so he has a whole article uh, trying to explain why that's the case. And so that's interesting. But another interesting thing, and, you know, listeners probably thought of it as soon as I said it, is uh, that there's not really a feeling, at least uh, in my life, and I'm sure with the life of many, that that journalists and you know professors are really the stalwart defenders of free speech anymore. Uh, so the fact that the article assumes that is very interesting, and it says something about where we are today. That you know academics and journalists aren't really thought of as uh, the defenders of free speech. And so in my article, I, I kind of use Cosa's arguments and make my own argument on why that change has occurred.
0: So just for clarity, Peter, let's drill down on that a bit. Uh, As far as uh, the market for ideas versus the market for goods and services, um, can you just give some examples for for clarity's sake?
1: Yeah, sure. So market for goods and services, uh, we can think of someone who works in producing things. And so that's everything from, you know, early production, like mining, to you know later in production like refining and and last of all we could say like sales or giving you know financial uh services those sorts of things so you know things that you buy and sell we can generally think of as the market for goods and services and having to do with that market the market for ideas uh is more abstract uh there is a a thought that Uh, Basically, when we are exchanging our ideas, it's sort of like a market. In other words, we're giving our ideas and someone gives us something back. They give us their ideas and there's sort of this competition that's going on that maybe sort of mirrors or looks like uh, market competition. And this competition, you know, allows some ideas to win and some ideas to lose. And the traditional view is that, you know, bad ideas lose and good ideas win in this market. Uh, and so that's kind of the the dichotomy that's the the two different markets there
0: so w- when uh w- when you talk about uh, uh you know this these weren't your words these are my words, but when you talk about really the uh maybe uh confidence loss that 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 a lot of us uh, have now in uh, mainstream media and some of the traditional uh, institutions that maybe we 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 used to rely on for for information um comment a little bit from from your perspective as to uh, what has really catalyzed that change?
1: Yeah, so I, I think this is uh, an important question you bring up. I, for For me, I actually don't think a whole lot in those industries, uh, from for example, the mainstream media, uh, from the intellectual class, from journalists, I actually don't think a lot of what they do has changed. Uh, I actually think that the difference is that we have sort of a a new entrance into the market for ideas, uh, and that's regular people. And so we have things like social media coming up. We have podcasts that people listen to. There's all sorts of channels by which, you know, average, everyday people can communicate their thoughts. And it turns out when people are able to do that, when there's more people in this realm of ideas, Uh, What happens is a lot of uh, bad framing and a lot of, uh, you know, dishonest practice or maybe honest, but bad practice, uh, you know, failed practice of of journalism comes about. So people see, you know, the story and they research it themselves and then they see the framing on, you know, NBC, CNN, whoever it is. And they say, well, that's not actually an accurate framing at all. I read this story myself. Uh, And so. I, I think the, the advent of technology has introduced some competition, and we're just seeing uh, what those industries now look like on the underside now.
0: So, Peter, why the uh, – and this, I guess, is my perception, but, but it seems that uh, when, when you look at uh, some of the censorship that's occurred on Twitter and uh, uh, some of the stories that are covered on the, uh, the, the major news networks, to use that term – that there seems to be a, a a genuine fear among the older institutional type uh, co- companies, uh, you know, a, a fear of maybe these citizen journalists to use that term. Is, is that right. fair?
1: Yeah, I, Dennis, I'd say so. Absolutely. In fact, that you know that that's my argument in this article that this shift that has occurred from really defending free speech to uh, being more, uh, you know will say, desiring censorship more. Uh, th- this shift has occurred because uh, these people who are now sort of these freelance journalists, we could say, or people who research the ideas independently and put them online, uh, these people are viewed as basically a business threat. That it used to be that, uh, you know, only a certain group of people were allowed to talk about, uh, you know, the ideas and craft the narrative and to go through the news but now that this is – some people like to use the word democratized. That's very popular. I'm a little reluctant to use that term. But uh, you know, for sake of ease, we'll say now that this market has been kind of democratized, that the market for ideas doesn't just uh, you know, sit in the hands of uh, a few people. I think this current industry or, or the vested interest, the old institutions, as you put it, uh, are really afraid that this competition is going to beat them. Uh, you know uh, it's not hard to imagine how it could either. I mean, you look at the numbers that most of these cable news shows are doing, uh, and you compare them to an episode of uh joe rogan's podcast and uh there's no comparison right uh so i I think this is fear from the sense that uh people aren't going to be interested in the the stories that they put out anymore
0: yeah, and you know one example i think uh peter when you when you look at c n n plus this this streaming service and c n n invested uh, lots of money into it. I don't, I don't know the number off yeah. the top of my head, but I mean, that, that, that was around for like, uh, what, less than a month. Yeah.
1: They, they, you know, they were predicting something like hundreds or tens of thousands of listeners and, and got very few. Uh, yeah, that I, I think that's a perfect example of, uh, you know, the, the old, uh, institutional framework, the old bureaucracies that they work in just aren't suited for the new technology. Uh, and I think they're discovering that more and more.
0: Well, my guest today is uh, Peter Jacobson. Peter is a professor at Ottawa University. Uh, He does the Faith and Economics podcast. Um, And uh, Peter, if somebody wanted to uh, learn more and uh, listen to your podcast, uh, I'm assuming available on all the uh, traditional podcast sources?
1: Yeah, so we're up on Spotify. You can find us on Anchor. Uh, Basically, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Uh, Another route that they could go is I have a personal website. It's kind of an academic website, but the podcast is there, and it's at peter-jacobson.com. So that's another option. Or you could Google Faith and Economics Podcast. So those would probably be the best ways.
0: Well, terrific. Well, uh, fascinating conversation. The good news is I will be back in the next segment uh, with Peter Jacobson. So stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of chatting today with Dr. Peter Jacobson. Peter is a professor at Ottawa University. As he pointed out in the first segment, uh, this is the good Ottawa. Uh, It's in, I think you said, Kansas, correct, Peter?
1: That's right. The great state of Kansas.
0: The great state of Kansas. Um, And he is uh, the sponsor or one of the co-hosts, I should say, of the Faith and Economics podcast, which... uh, you can find it all the traditional podcast sources, as Peter pointed out in the last segment. Spotify and Anchor are a couple of good places to go. Um, and, and, Peter, let's just go back and maybe start where we did in the last segment. Um, you, you know, your article that, uh, again, I found fascinating, uh, put forth a theory by, I believe you said Ronald Coase. And uh, uh, that, that theory kind of predicted that we would eventually get some censorship. So can we dig into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, just to refresh listeners, Coase's main question was, and again, writing in the 70s, why is it that these professors and these journalists are so intent on defending the First Amendment uh, and don't want any regulation on on the First Amendment? uh, But they love having regulations on the market for goods and services, uh, you know, different product regulations and things like that. And so Coase goes through a couple possible explanations uh, that are sometimes given. You know, one explanation is, uh, and this language actually sounds pretty familiar to to listeners probably, that, you know, uh, we need to have speech. And then here's the familiar part, uh, because it's necessary to have free speech for our democracy to function. And I actually don't even think that that's a a super bad argument. I I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, The ability to share ideas is necessary uh, in order to have a a well-functioning democracy. Uh, But Coase points out a problem. And what he says is that's true. But that's also true of the market for goods and services. You know, if free speech is necessary for a well functioning democracy, you would think clothes and houses and food uh, would also be necessary for a well functioning democracy. And so the fact that speech is necessary for a well functioning democracy doesn't imply uh, that it should be free of regulation unless you also say that things like food, clothing, housing, goods, and services should also be free of regulation. And so this is one of the arguments that Coast tackles. And so what he's He's pointing out is basically there's this hypocrisy going on. They're sort of this uh, talking out of both sides of your mouth. And Coase's main argument, and he actually is making a very, uh, I I won't say it's not weak in the sense that it's not a good argument. It's weak in the sense that he's he's not even claiming that much. Uh, What Coase is saying is basically, well, if you believe in regulation of one, you should believe in regulation for the other. And if you don't, you've got to be able to give a good explanation why. And Coase Coast gives his own explanation. He says, the reason I think this is the case is that the people who are in the market for ideas view their market as very you know high and important, and they view the market of goods and services that they're not in as very lowly. And even more, the people in the market for ideas are the ones who are crafting the regulations. And so not only do they view their market as higher, they also view themselves as the ones who are going to craft regulations for that market for goods and services. And so that's... Uh, I I think a pretty compelling explanation that Coase puts forward uh, for why there's the change or why there's this uh, apparent hypocrisy. But then the question is, well, why is there this change? And I think, Dennis, this gets to something that you and I were talking about, which is that journalists, professors, whoever you want to call the professional intelligent class who trades in the market for ideas. uh, Basically, they wanted to keep it free of regulation because they were the ones in charge of it, is Coase's argument. Uh, And what we should notice is over the last 50 or so years, uh, this group has no longer become in charge or this group has lost its control of uh, this market for ideas, again, because of podcasts, social media, things like that. And so the reason they had to protect that market is now gone. You know, in in fact, it's probably even intensified. You look at a lot of industries uh, and it seems to be the case that industry uh, monopolists will uh, beg for regulations when competition seems like it's the most likely to beat them out.
0: So, Peter, when when you when you when you go back and kind of take a look at some recent events, we had uh, Elon Musk who uh, was going to buy Twitter. Uh, we had this uh, federal agency that was then formed, um, I, from my perspective, in response uh, that was called the you know, Department or Office of Disinformation. I don't even know what it was called, but I think that's now put on on, on hold. Um, Just talk about that in light of Coase's theory.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think that there is uh, something kind of disappointing but predictable about all this. You know, when we had the Uh, 2016 election and there was all this clamoring about, uh, you know, social media disinformation being spread. Uh, Listeners might remember that Mark Zuckerberg uh, voluntarily went up to Congress to testify. They didn't ask him to. He kind of showed up. Uh, And that should make anybody who's watching suspicious. Uh, Whenever there's someone who is going to politicians and saying, I agree with you, my industry needs to be regulated, there's a good chance that what's going on is something called regulatory capture. And the idea of regulatory capture is, well, in order to make rules for Facebook or for social media, uh, the governments need someone who is intelligent and who understands that industry uh, to help them craft the regulations. It's not like the congressmen who are asking those questions who didn't even know what Facebook is uh, can make those regulations themselves. And so they rely on these experts. The problem is the experts they rely on are often the people who are being regulated. And so this leads to a situation where industry insiders can craft regulations to keep out industry outsiders. And so when I see this disinformation governance board, I think is the name, while, while you were saying it, it pops into my head. When I see something like that rise up, my first thought is, well, this is politicians' attempt to create an organization which will work with industry insiders to keep out industry outsiders. I am not uh, at all convinced that uh, this board is particularly concerned with this information. Uh, I think the board is concerned with the wrong information. And uh, thankfully, of course, uh, you know, there was a, a disbanding of that board, but they've since replaced, uh, you know, very uh, loosely replaced it with this uh, board on uh, anti-harassment online or something like this. It, it, it's funny that, uh, without much context, you can basically see that these two organizations, even though they have very different names, probably serve the same purpose.
0: So, Peter, from, from, from your perspective, how do you see this, uh, th- this way we all get our information uh, e- evolving, moving ahead? I mean, I, I look at how I get my information today versus how I got my information just a couple years ago. And I have certain sources that I trust, and then certain sources that that frankly uh have let me down and 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 I don't trust them again so i i I'm, the way I've gotten my information has changed a lot. uh do you think this evolution is is in process? Are we just getting started? How do you see all this playing out
1: you know i I hope it's in process uh and the reason I say that is the way that the internet currently is. Uh, makes it particularly susceptible to things like censorship uh, by things like the Disinformation Governance Board. Um, Basically, right now, how the Internet works is uh, that there's servers all over the world, but when you interact with the Internet, what you're interacting with isn't really information that belongs to you. Uh, It's information that's housed in the servers of various companies. Uh, And So when you go to an article on Fox News and you make a comment or you go on Twitter and you make a tweet, uh, that comment is not your property. It exists on a server that you don't have any sort of access to. And so there is sort of a, a centraliz- centralized component to how the Internet is today. Uh, and that you know, this wasn't planned. It kind of happens because we slowly built up the Internet on an old framework and stuff like this. Uh, I, I hope the Internet moves into a more decentralized direction. And, and that if we want to escape things like censorship, that, that would be what we would have to do. And so that looks something like more housing your own data on your own computer, more peer-to-peer transfers, more uh, in- being able to encrypt messages from your own computer. Uh, that that's kind of my view. If if the internet is to continue to grow and you know exist without censorship, I think that's the only option. Is sort of a, a, a more um, you know owner or, or more uh, user-owned type of internet type of computer uh, situation.
0: So, Peter, do you think that we can ultimately get there? Do you think that uh, – I guess these, again, are my terms – do you think free market forces can uh, overcome the desire of, I'll say, the ruling class to be able to control information?
1: <laughs> oh, this, is a, this is the ultimate question, right, is uh, can the market outrun the, the force of the market? So, uh, it's a tough question. I, I want to kind of set it up so listeners understand why. The more wealth that's generated in a particular industry, in other words, the more beneficial it is to the people who are the buyers, uh, the more the government has an incentive to try to capture that wealth. Uh, because the bigger the pile of the money, the better it is to, you know, have a cut of the pie of money. Right. Um, and so the, the downside is this, is that as markets get better and as technology improves, that wealth generation goes up. And so the incentive to capture it also goes up. But, you know, I, Dennis, I'm a big fan of an economist named Julian Simon. Uh, Julian Simon was a a big supporter of the idea that things are getting better, not worse. Uh, And he would constantly take data to that. And he would show, you know, well, pollution over time has gone down. Uh, You know, the cost of food over time has gone down. The hours you need to work to uh, drive a mile have gone down. And kind of this across the board, Simon, you know, threw up all these different doom and gloom forecasts and showed how they didn't come to be and they won't come to be. And so I tend to be an optimist. Uh, I I tend to be an optimist because I I look at the world and from a a realistic perspective, I do think that the forces of creation have outrun the forces of capture and destruction. Uh, And even though there are occasional backslides and bad moments throughout history, Um, This doesn't mean that forevermore, you know, we're in some utopia or something like that. Uh, Even though we have those bad moments, I think ultimately things do swing back around.
0: Well, my guest today has been Dr. Peter Jacobson. He's a professor at Ottawa University. He is the co-host of the Faith and Economics podcast that you can find at uh, most any podcast uh, source and uh peter uh really enjoyed the conversation today i know the listeners will as well and uh, certainly appreciate your perspective and your work and uh, i'd love to have you back down the road
1: yeah that sounds great dennis it was a pleasure to be on really and again thank you very much Uh, i'm grateful for the opportunity and grateful that your listeners took time to hear me
0: we will return after these words is RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks for tuning in today. And thanks again to my special guest on today's program, Dr. Peter Jacobson, for joining us as well. If you have not yet requested my complimentary July special report, it's titled Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. I believe it is an especially timely report given what's going on in the economy and in the markets today. I would love to send you a complimentary copy, and I'm going to talk in this segment about what is in the report. But to get your copy of the report, as well as the bonus information that will accompany it, all you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. You just need to let me know where to mail your report and all the bonus information. You'll get a free box of a lot of information that will talk about the five investing myths and mistakes uh, that investors can make in this environment and how to potentially avoid them. It will also suggest for you a path forward. In the report, one of the mistakes that I talk about, as I alluded to in the first segment of today's program, is ignoring the realities of today's economy. Since the time of the financial crisis, The Federal Reserve has literally created about $5 trillion out of literally thin air. And when you take a look at how stocks have performed over that same time frame, it's interesting how the trajectory or advance of stocks has almost exactly mirrored the amount of currency that has been created stocks, when you use the S&P 500 as a metric, have increased by about 120% from the market bottom in calendar year 2020, which is when the currency creation began in earnest. And currency creation since that time has, has increased by about 125%. So we have almost an exact percentage increase. Now, as I mentioned in the first segment, currency creation at these levels has led to the inflation that we are now all seeing and we are all now suffering through. Now, stocks have, as anybody that has had money in a 401k or IRA with stock exposure knows, stocks have had a very rough year so far. I believe that while real estate has not yet followed stocks down... I am forecasting that by the end of 2022, we will see the beginning of real estate following stocks, and we will see a collapse or decline in prices. In fact, there are already signs that the real estate market is slowing. Forbes, on June 28, published an article that said this, quote, Call it the mid-May housing market meltdown. For Pamela Grunstein, a real estate agent in Westchester County, New York, it felt like the housing market went from hot to cold in the span of only a week. The phone, which had often been ringing off the hook, she says, began to ring just a few times a day. Open houses had been attracting dozens of prospective buyers, and suddenly some had zero traffic. It's no coincidence that in mid-May, when Grunstein noticed the housing market was shifting, Mortgage rates also spiked to the highest level since 2009. Interest rates coupled with record high home prices helped push the average mortgage payment up more than $500 per month, which is a 37% jump since the start of the year. Like Grunstein, many real estate agents across the country say they have seen housing market activity suddenly come to a halt. That's the end of the quote from the article. Now, it's not all that surprising that real estate is starting to slow because real estate and stocks often decline hand-in-hand or nearly hand-in-hand when an economy slows. Now, I believe this current bubble, which I described in the first segment as an everything bubble, may also see the U.S. dollar and other U.S. dollar-denominated assets decline. Now, undoubtedly, those of you that follow Financial markets, even from a distance, have read that the U.S. dollar is strong. The index that is typically used to measure the strength of the U.S. dollar is something called the U.S. dollar index. And the U.S. dollar index does not cover, does not report, the absolute purchasing power of the dollar. The absolute purchasing power of the dollar is declining. The U.S. Dollar Index measures the purchasing power of the dollar against the major trading partner's currency uh, of the United States. So the six countries that trade the most with the United States have their currencies in this basket, and the U.S. Dollar Index measures the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar against this basket of currencies. Now, interestingly, when you take a look at U.S. Treasuries... U.S. Treasuries have been declining pretty significantly. I'm going to give you just a bit from my July special report. And if you're just joining me, you can get a copy of the July special report titled Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. All you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com, and I'll be very glad to send you a copy. But back to the performance of long-term U.S. Treasuries. In early 2020, about the same time as the Fed began to engage in massive levels of currency creation, U.S. Treasuries began their decline. Now, as I already talked about in this segment, since early 2020, the Federal Reserve has created about $5 trillion in currency. Now, if you go take a look at an exchange-traded fund that tracks the price of long-term U.S. Treasuries, you see that U.S. Treasuries over that time frame have declined by nearly 40%. Now, as as the Federal Reserve has been creating currency at a pace that I often describe as reckless, the U.S. dollar has understandably been losing favor around the world. In a recent newsletter that I publish every week, it's called Portfolio Watch, and if you're not a subscriber, you should be. The subscription is free. You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and sign up. I published a chart that showed the U.S. Treasury holdings and gold reserve holdings of China and Russia combined, and this is interesting. Since mid-2017, U.S. Treasury holdings by Russia and China have fallen by nearly 25%, while gold reserve holdings have increased by nearly double. So in the last five years, China and Russia combined have nearly doubled their gold reserves while cutting U.S. Treasuries and U.S. dollar-based holdings by 25%. There is a lesson there, and I talk about this in the July special report If you've not yet requested a copy, just go to requestyourreport.com, and I'll be glad to send you a copy. The report, again, is titled Five Investing Myths and Mistakes and How to Potentially Avoid Them. Again, requestyourreport.com is where you go to get the report, and uh, you'll also get a lot of bonus information. So, again, requestyourreport.com is the site. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.